Now, we are here in Revelation 6, the start of what is called the Great Tribulation, and the last seven years of human history as we know it, according to Bible prophecy. Uh, people were coming up to me today, as usual, say, what's up today? You know, where are we at? And I say, oh, man, it's the end of the world. And they would always say, oh, it's not that bad, Pastor. No, no, no. It's the end of the world is what we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 6. So as you make your way there, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we open to these very sobering words, very serious words that uh, grab our hearts and our minds, we pray that the Holy Spirit show us the peace of Christ and the gospel and also, Father, just the, the truths that we need that set our hearts free, that we might live a blessed life. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you Google end-of-the-world films, uh, you will find that between literature, movies, and television, there are a thousand-plus works of what is called apocalyptic fiction. You know, the Terminator-type movies, 2012, I Am Legend, Miracle Mile, The Day After, Planet of the Apes. So the list goes on and on and on. <laughs> and by the way, the Planet of the Apes, the 68 version, is the best of them all. <laughs> Just my humble opinion. Now, interesting, and has been suggested, because of the vast number of such films and literature, that within the human heart, there's an instinct that the world as we know it does not continue forever and that we find ways to express this subconscious knowing through various art forms such as literature, films, and various other uh, communications. Now, how uh, do these films say that the world ends? Well, there are various causes. Aliens disease and plagues, zombies, <laughs> monkeys on steroids, <laughs> technology gone wild, global climate changes, and war, war, and more war. Now, funny, none of the plots have Almighty God judging a Christ-rejecting sinful world in justice, holiness, and righteousness. Uh, Moving on. Uh, we are studying the book of Revelation, which gets its title from the Greek word, as many of you have heard, apocalypsis, which just means to unveil or to reveal. Now, today we use it to describe that end of the world chaos, but generally speaking, the word originally means just to unveil or to reveal. Now, there's a huge world of difference, of course, between the world's apocalyptic fiction and Bible prophecy. The Bible is a form of literature, but it classifies itself as a category as unto itself, nonfiction, uh, and with evidence that supports that claim. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. And then again in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, no prophecy has as its origin 
any man, but rather holy men of God, moved by the Holy Spirit, were carried along by him as they wrote. And so we find that the word of God claims to be just that, not the word of men, but the word of the Holy Spirit, who is God. Now, concerning this prophecy that we're looking at, 22 chapters, it's called the prophecy of this book. Jesus calls it that. So first of the one revealing, here's what he says. These are the words of him who is holy and true, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So as to the one who's revealing this particular prophecy called Revelation, uh, he is saying he is God and he is faithful and he is true. And then concerning the actual revelation, it says, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And so here we are. We're at that place. Chapter 6, being shown the things that must soon take place. And also, according to the Lord's own outline for this book in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, we see not only are these the things that must soon take place, but they are also the things that take place after the church, after the church age. So the Lord underscores this very important fact in chapter 4 and verse 1 and following by taking John who we maintain represents the church up into heaven, out of harm's way, interrupting his vision right before. I mean, he was in the spirit. He was getting it loud and clear. And then God interrupts him right before he shows them the great tribulation, God's wrath or the day of the Lord poured out upon those who dwelt on the earth. Now, chapter 6, we're entering... Now, a 14-chapter period of time called, as I've been saying, the Great Tribulation. Chapter 6 through 19 represents, as we believe, a seven-year period. We get the number 7 from Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 that says that this seven-year period, this last seven years of planet Earth, the Great Tribulation has been defined like this, unique, a time of unique, supernatural, cataclysmic, divine judgment upon a rebellious world that ushers in the visible, physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ and establishing of his kingdom, God's kingdom on earth, which is called the millennial kingdom. Now, are you ready to enter the great tribulation? Amen? No, I mean here, right now. I mean, I, I mean, here we go, verse 1. That's what I meant there. Because if you are born again, you actually are more ready than you may realize. Because somewhere before chapter 6 and verse 1, the trumpet has sounded from heaven. And two men were in a field. And one was taken and one was left. Two women were preparing a meal. One was taken, one was left. A husband and a wife were asleep in the same bed. One was taken, one was left. Matthew 24 and verse 40. And in a moment, 
It happened in a twinkling of an eye. We were changed into our eternal bodies in a flash. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. And faithful to Jesus' promise to spare his church from the time of tribulation that would come upon the whole earth. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord Jesus now has come like a thief in the night, and God has removed believers, his church, from the earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. Because it is the earth and those unbelievers who dwell on it in unbelief and rebellion and not the church who are the object of his wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. Therefore, what do we say before we dive in to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1? We therefore can comfort one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Now, some of you may be, be thinking to yourself, Man, come on. Millions of Christians just poof, disappear. Come on, man. Be real. Well, listen, you're going to have a problem with other sections of the Bible as well. God speaks. The universe leaps into existence. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 6. God speaks and the earth stops moving in its orbit. There's extra hours of daylight so that Israel, who needs the light to finish a battle, has more daylight so the earth stops and the sun stands still. Joshua chapter 10 verse 13. God speaks and the Red Sea parts. God's people go through. God speaks. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. John chapter 5. John chapter 9, John chapter 11. God speaks and thousands of loaves of bread and fish appear to feed thousands of hungry bellies. John chapter 6. So all I'm saying to you is that the same God who could make thousands of fish appear can make thousands of Christians disappear. It's not very hard for him. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures of all time, Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, I am the Lord and God of all mankind is anything too hard for me. So here in chapter 6 and verse 1, like Enoch who walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Genesis 5 and 24, the church is gone. The tribulation has come. And now as we dive in, listen, and the reason I gave you all the references is because it's not just my opinion. I'm giving you, uh, I'm giving you a framework supported by the scriptures that you can cite, look up for yourself. Now, never has there been a more great contrast between chapters, chapters 5 and 6, for example. Chapter 5, throne room of God. There's hallelujahs, there's singing, there's joy, there's angels. There's, we believe, the church around the throne, worshiping, and there's peace. And then 6-1 on earth, the darkest days possible. What a contrast, but it's in keeping with the Lord's parable about heaven and hell, that kind of thing. He says the royal wedding and celebration is inside the door 
And then outside the door, weeping, darkness, gnashing of teeth. You see, so chapter 5, the singing has quieted. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say, in a voice like thunder, come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, what we'll do with the chapter is kind of walk through it little bit by bit. And so to help you understand what's going on, seven seals are going to be opened in this chapter, and we'll look at six of them. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you will realize that the tribulation is a seven-year period. Now, the seven-year period from chapter 6 to 19 is divided into three categories, and you'll see on the slide here. There are first seven seals to be opened. On the seventh seal, seven trumpets appear. The seven trumpets sound, but on the seventh trumpet, you find seven bowls of God's wrath poured upon the earth. But each of these seals, uh, trumpets, and bowls all will describe some judgment that is taking place or an explanation for it upon the earth. So the seven years, chapter 6 through 19, are divided into these 21 judgments. And uh, the reason that most commentators think that the seals are an overview is because you have uh, a beginning and a middle, and toward the sixth seal, you have what sounds like the end of the, the tribulation, and we really haven't started it. So commentators say... For the seals, when you get to seal seven, now he opens up the details of what has just been given to you as an overview. So with that said, thank you for the slide. Uh, Roman numeral number one, let's deal with the first of four horsemen of the apocalypse, all right? Number one, the first horse, white and its rider, the Antichrist. Well, this might take you... Um, uh, for surprise, you might have been thinking that's Jesus. Exactly. A lot of similarities. The Antichrist and Christ. Now, uh, both ride white horses. Both are conquerors with crowns, though Jesus' crown is different. Both are bent on conquest. Sounds like Jesus, similar to Jesus, but most commentators say it is not Jesus. Jesus rides a great white horse, Revelation 19, but his crown is very different. And there are some other reasons to set these two apart. Number one, the chronology's off. Uh, we meet Jesus riding out on the white horse at the end. We don't see him instigating the beginning of the tribulation. And number two, it's a little odd for Jesus to be in heaven opening all the seals. And then also in seal number one, he actually is the, the horse and the rider there. It just doesn't make sense to commentators. And we also know from Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 that it is the official start of the great tribulation is when the world dictator called the Antichrist signs a treaty. In the priest, <laughs> wow, that was a perfect little blend there. 
Atrice Petey. Wow. And only the Antichrist could do that. <laughs> he makes peace with Israel in the Middle East. And uh, that will officially start the Great Tribulation. So it makes perfect sense here. Now, a couple significant things about the, uh, his title, The Man of Sin, or he's also called The Lawless One. He is also most famously described as the beast. The word there is therion in the Greek, and it means a savage beast or a wild animal. So not a nice guy. And uh, he's well-received by the world. In chapter 13, the world worships him and is in awe of this world leader, this prince of peace that he is. Who is like the beast, they will say. And also he is well-received by Israel. Interesting prophetic word that, that the Lord gives to Israel, recorded in John chapter 5. He says to the Jews, I come to you in my Father's name. You don't receive me. Oh, somebody else will come to you in his own name. And him, you all will receive. Bingo. The lawless one the Antichrist, who comes in his own name. Now, how did the beast get center stage on the world uh, scenario, uh, the object of the world's worship, and how did he gain the trust of Israel as her would-be savior? Well, you'll notice that he's given a bow, but there are no arrows. It's very odd to say bow and have no weapon. It's just a bow because it's a bloodless conquest at first. And what does he use to get the minds and the hearts and the will of not only Israel, but of the world, deception. And this is perfectly in keeping with the New Testament, as you'll see on the screen, 2 Thessalonians there, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, what a sad irony, because God's all about truth. I mean, it's in his title. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he came. He said, my teaching is truth, and that truth will set the human heart free. I mean, God is all about truth, not about deceiving people. That's very interesting. The Lord said that he's the light of the world. If you come to me, you'll never walk in darkness. You'll never be deceived. But now, God gives those who refuse him, who reject the truth that they were offered, what they want. Now, we're going to talk about the Antichrist uh, much more to follow. Let's move on to the second horseman, verses 3 and 4. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. 
to him was given a large sword. So, well, it seems that the tribulation starts out very mildly and with great peace. It's a deceptive peace, but peace nonetheless. When I was a kid growing up in New England, after a nice fresh snowfall, we would love to go outside and, and make these snowballs and roll them and, until they got ginormous. And you could roll them and roll them and roll them. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we lived on a hill. And so we'd, we'd, take, we'd roll it right out to the brow of the hill. And then we'd all four of us would push and boom, there it would go rolling down, just getting bigger and bigger. Just amazing. And I thought of that as I was preparing because the tribulation starts with world peace and this admired dictator. Daniel says he's brilliant, a brilliant mind and brilliant orator. It starts out slow and steady and then boom, the second seal is open. So if you're taking notes, second point here, the second horse, fiery red, war. So the rider of this horse is easy to recognize, and the great imposter can't deliver what he's promised, the fake prince of peace that he is. He can't stop seal number two. It's a temporary peace. This is in keeping what's written in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 3. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord, which the day of the Lord is used 18 times in the Old Testament. And please know this. The tribulation period is nothing new to the Bible. 18 times it's mentioned in the Old Testament and described in graphic terms just as you have in the tribulation. It is not a new thought. It's an old thought that goes back to the prophets who spoke about the day of the Lord. Let me start reading again. Now, brothers, about the times and dates, he's speaking about the end. We don't need to write to you because you already know it's going to, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And here it is. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. By the way, the Greek word for when the Lord says, I must show you the things that will come, must come soon. The word soon there has another nuance, and it means once something has started suddenly, it happens swiftly. And this is the understanding of what the Lord is speaking of here, that suddenly in the midst of all this peace, Suddenly, all hell breaks loose because the Lord opens seal number two. So notice that the writer in your text doesn't have to bring war. He just needs to take the peace that restrains wars. Peace is a gift from God. It's not the natural state of mankind. Once the gift is withdrawn, men go at it like animals. Now, the Great Tribulation is a time, really, when God's general grace that he gives to, Matthew chapter 5 says in the Sermon on the Mount, God is kind to the uh, ungrateful and to the wicked. In other words, he blesses everybody with general grace. The Great Tribulation, those general graces that everybody takes for granted are lifted, and then all hell breaks loose. 
in war. Now, uh, let me quote a scholar. Uh, These aren't your usual wars, by the way, if there is any such thing. The scope is wider, global. The weapons are greater, nuclear. The tolls are higher, loss of life that makes all other wars pale in significance. The earth is unable to recover. It's the wars that end all war, and it's at full swing in a valley called Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon, when Jesus actually appears. Now, the sad irony. God's all about peace. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Again, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And his title, Prince of Peace. Now, it's not on God's, it's not because of God's unwillingness on his part that they're not going to have peace. He says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 21, all day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. And then again in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone and kill the prophets God sends to you, how often I would long and desire to gather your children together under my wings and protect you, but you were unwilling. And I just quoted to you Luke 13 and 34. So now God gives those who refuse him, who reject the peace that they were offered, what they want. Now, interesting and another justification for believing the the writer of horse number one is the Antichrist is here's what the imposter of his fake white horse on his fake white horse and his phony crown and his counterfeit peace gets you. World war, violence, chaos, upheaval, bloodshed, and strife. Because without the Prince of Peace, there's no peace. But Isaiah records for us the result of the conquest of the true conqueror. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4. He will judge between nations. He will settle disputes. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's God's heart. God's heart is peace. Uh, Verses 5 and 6, horse number 3. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. So Roman numeral number three, the third horse, black in color, its rider, famine and scarcity. Now, black is the color that the Bible uses for mourning and grief, and so do most cultures. Really, world war really helps produce an economic instability and collapse. The scales here symbolize trade and commerce, and Christian economists say it's really not hard to imagine 
this kind of scenario anymore with skyrocketing deficits, revenues insufficient to even pay the interest on a nation's debt, plus scarcity from world war equals what is called hyperinflation. And all that means is, is that your money doesn't buy anything anymore. It's useless. And we already see that. A hundred years ago, you would be making these kinds of statements and everybody would be like, are you kidding me? Come on. But today, you can see a possibility of a one world ruler. You could see a possibility of economic chaos. You have the technology for the whole world to be able to see one person at the same time. A hundred years ago, none of this would make sense. And we see it coming together. Now, uh, scholars and commentators say, is this where a deal with the beast comes in? In the scarcity, in the famine, where you cannot buy well, listen, he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. So commentators say uh, they're still luxury items. The oil and wine always stands for uh, luxury items in the Bible. And so uh, if you have the money and if you have the connections, you can still get by. Well, what kind of connection are you going to need? You're going to need to worship the beast and take his number, or you won't be able to. So interesting here that the whole point is that you'll have to work a whole day just to feed your mouth only. Nobody else's mouth, no clothes, no, no shelter, no rent, no transportation, nothing. One day's wages goes to feed yourself. That's how bad it will be. Now, the sad irony, of course, is God's all about provision. <laughs> he says to the, some of his listeners who are all uh, concerned about their daily bread, he said, which of you, if your son asked for a bread, uh, piece of bread, would give him a stone? If he, if he wants an egg, would he, would he give him a scorpion? Come on, you... Uh, you guys are fallen and evil, but you know how to take care of your kids. Trust me, I know how to take care of mine. God knows how to provide for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory. So in every plague, in every seal, in every judgment, we find that God is exactly the opposite and has offered exactly the opposite. But for those who reject what he's offering, there's no other choice but to receive the contrast of the offer of provision. Let me provide. Let me give you bread. Let me meet all your needs. No, thank you. Well, then you have scarcity because he is the source of life. Now moving on, 7 and 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four, fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by wild animals of the earth. Roman numeral number four, the fourth horse 
pale in color, its rider, death. Now, sad, sobering picture of why Jesus described the tribulation this way. In Matthew chapter 24, as you're about to see, um, and verses 21 and 22, this is what Jesus described this period of time like. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now, the word elect stands for those God foreknew before creation that would come to him in the tribulation time. The word church is never used again 17 times before chapter 6, and then never again. But people do repent of their sins and come to know Christ in the tribulation. But it's a terrible time. Now let's do the math. With this seal, a quarter of the world's population is taken away, dies, slaughtered. That would be, out of 6 billion people, 1,500,000,000. Billion with a B, 500 million lives lost. The color of the horse is the word chloros in the Greek. From the word we get chlorine. It's the pale greenish yellowish thing that he's after there. The horse really has got the flu face color. It's pale kind of green uh, Ray Stedman said this, here's a picture of death riding the, the horse and Hades following up with the hearse behind. It's a sad irony. Why? Because God, here's the contrast, God is all about life. It's in his title, the author of life. It's in his mission statement. You want to know why I came? John chapter 10 and verse 10. Here's why I came. Let me put it to you in one sentence. I came so that they could have life and have it more abundantly. The word there is to the full. So so not just mere existence, but a life that counts, that it has sweet contentment and peace and meaning and purpose. And so Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, I say to them as surely as, I live, declares the sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die when you do not have to? Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. Okay, 9 through 11. The fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God. And the testimony they had maintained, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Interesting. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. Now, the good news, as I've alluded to, is is that some folks will be getting saved. In fact, quite a few will be getting saved during the tribulation period. The fifth seal, then, is the fate of God's martyrs. So now, in seal number five, 
the scene shifts from death of unbelievers, really, and Hades on earth, to the death of believers and what's going on in heaven. There's consolation there that we see that salvation is possible, as I've been saying. So first of all, what do you see? You see those who've been killed in the tribulation, who don't take the mark of the beast, die and are in a special place in heaven. That's number one. Now, who are these people? Well, many come from unsaved Christian families, unfortunately, who got left behind but heard the gospel really well and perhaps will become heroes in that day. Many Jews who realize the mistake of rejecting Jesus and many who really probably getting the gospel for the real first time, they get saved. You know, we're all gone. Isn't it a fascinating thought? Not one believer on the face of the earth the moment after the rapture. Not one Christian left. But there'll be Bibles and there'll be liberal unsaved pastors and there'll be unsaved theologians. There'll be Bible commentaries. There's enough tools left behind that those who want to repent can repent and find life. Now, something interesting, they're crying out for vengeance, and commentators say it's kind of an odd thing for Christians to hear them crying out for vengeance because it's not something we do. I mean, the Psalms do. They're called imprecatory psalms where you're praying uh, against your enemy. And, and, and commentators are right. Christians ought to uh, see our enemy today as the spiritual enemies behind flesh and blood because you just never know who's who. But it seems that once they are freed from their earthly bodies, that in, their, in this intermediate state, they are well aware that they're undone. The battle needs to be finished. They themselves, they don't have their glorified bodies as we would have at this time because it's not quite the end of the age in totality. And so the white robe given them, commentators say, is that a kind of a, a intermediate body until the resurrection at the end of the age, which will be just a few short years later when Christ returns. They're told, listen, people are still being saved. They're still being martyred. It's not over. When, it's, when God deems it over, then evil will be vanquished and God will answer that prayer. So let's finish up with verse 12 to the end of the chapter. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Interesting. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, we see toward the end of the great tribulation and right before his face appears 
in keeping with the many other Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, the earth and the heavenly bodies seem to be shaken and come undone. As I said, the day of the Lord already warned us about this in many verses. Uh, I'll give them to you for your uh, reference. Zephaniah chapter 1, Joel chapter 2, Amos chapter 5, Zechariah chapter 1, and Jesus speaks about it in Matthew chapter 24. So number six, the sixth seal, final, a cosmic phenomenon here, the fate of God's planet and solar system. So, you know, I don't know if I've told you this or not, but I truly believe in the Big Bang Theory. Now, not at the beginning, but at the end. It's not how the world gets started, but it is apparently how it gets ended. Now, commentators ask the question, and so let me just ask it of you. What kind of blast can violently shake the earth, spew tons of debris into the atmosphere, darken the sky almost black at noonday, upset the gravitational pull of the earth, turn the night sky into fiery red, level mountains, obliterate landscapes, and cause tsunamis that cover over islands with water. Nuclear war, the kind of nuclear weapons we possess today, make Nagasaki and Hiroshima look like a little toy bomb. So uh, commentators say, for John, who lived 2,000 years ago, to be trying to describe what he's seeing, the figs, stars like figs falling, well, well, stars can't fall and hit the earth because if they did, we wouldn't have an earth. So commentators say, now if John is watching smart bombs and missiles lighting up the night sky, it sure would seem to him like stars falling from the sky, like figs drop from a tree in autumn. Now, the final thoughts here is to note the spiritual temperature of that day. Because one would think it's like, okay, they really learned their lesson and everybody's ready to repent, but the word for the day will be fear and fleeing. Uh, slide no, Another slide here shows you what I'm talking about. The rest of mankind here in Revelation chapter 9. Hopefully I have that one. If not, I'll just read it. Yeah. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still didn't repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshiping demons and idols, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's repeated about three times during the tribulation. Just by the ways, just so you know, they're not repenting. And they know who they've offended because they say it'd be better to die than to face who? The Lamb, their words. They know that it's Jesus Christ. And they, they think mistakenly, like many unbelievers do today, that death is better because death is to them a cessation of life, that they're totally free of consequences after their body has died. They're wrong 
because God made us eternal. He breathed into us the breath of life and man became a living soul. Genesis chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. There's a, it's appointed unto men once to die and there's an and there because something comes afterwards. An evaluation, a judgment. And so they just think, they cry out, oh man, it'd be better to die than to face that. How about repent? He's called the lamb. And what a paradox as we wrap up our remarks here. What a paradox. I mean, just look at who's opening the seals. The wrath of who? The wrath of the lamb. (laughs) Oh no. Why does God do that? That to me is just so striking. He says, you want to know my nature through this tribulation? And as he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, I am gentle. God revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God made visible in a human body. And how does Jesus, who is God in a body, define himself? He says, gentle, Humble in heart, sweet, kind, humility. Not one cell, not one cell to intimidate or to boss around. Adorable, sweet, kind, attractive, cuddly. I mean, serious, what guy? I mean, there are big, tough guys in here. And you see that, you're like, oh. (laughs) The wrath of him. And in this sweetness, and here's the paradox of all for the great tribulation. This lamb binds himself as an offering for those he's now judging. He God in the body goes to a cross of wood that he created and lays down his life and says, Father, forgive them, talking about them, for they know not what they're doing. He himself bears in his own body their sins, the whole world. He died for our sins, 1 John chapter 2 at verse 1. But not only our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. Therefore, he died for the sins of those who were rebelling against him in the tribulation, those upon whom he is sending forth judgment. But first, don't forget, and the Holy Spirit keeps saying, it's the Lamb. It's the Lamb. And if you say no to that on your behalf, then the wrath of God is your only option because the wrath of God was poured forth into him and the Lord absorbed every last bit of it for you. But if you say, no, I don't need it. I'd rather die. I'd rather have a mountain fall on me than face that face. Gnashing of teeth and hatred. Hard for us to believe who have come through that process that there are people out there that would rather have a mountain fall on them in unbelief than to bow the knee to the lamb. But that's the way it is. And if you don't bow the knee to this lamb, then you will bow the knee to the lion of the tribe 
of Judah. You see, the Lord has two natures. I love what Paul said in Romans 11, verse 22. Consider, listen to me, consider therefore the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who fell, but kindness to you. Kindness of a lamb for those who come to him in faith. Faith. And the terror of a lion for those who reject the sacrifice offered on their behalf. Two natures. He is the lamb, but he is the lion. And don't we expect this of a good God? A good God is morally obligated to annihilate bad. (laughs) A just and righteous and holy God is morally obligated by his own nature to annihilate corrupt defiled sin and evil and wrongdoing. So he's saying, if you just let me pay for it, then you're okay. But I'm going to judge it all. I'm going to throw it into Hades and Hades into the lake of fire and get rid of it forever because of who I am. And if you want to cling to it, you're going to go with it. And that's their problem. They cling to it. I myself don't even think it's them personally. I think it's the evil that he's judging and they're wrapped up in it. Just let go and trust the Lord. The last question is, it's the day of God's wrath and who can stand? Beautiful answer to that. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Faith. The horror of hell and the tribulation is how easy it would have been to avoid both. Faith, trust, he's made it very easy. But when there's pride, it's difficult to humble oneself and to trust. God has made it easy. 